video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study today. If you happen to be someone who regularly listens to my podcast or watches the videos either on YouTube or on Facebook, or of course on our website, Abounding Joy, you may think I've fallen off the edge of the earth because it's been a while, hasn't it? (laughs) I'm actually just now, I hope, getting past the worst case of laryngitis I've ever had. It's been going on for several weeks now. And I think, hopefully, it's coming to an end. And that's why I decided I might at least try to post this study today. We'll see how it goes. Another factor in the fact that you've not seen any podcasts lately, some of you know this, is on March 14th, Vicki and I joined Fairview Tabernacle Baptist Church in Sweetwater. That means, for one thing, I'm no longer a regular teacher in a Bible study class at this point in time. We'd been members at Severe Heights, as many of you know, for 13 years. It was a wonderful 13 years. When we joined there in 2008, the pastor was Holly Miller, wonderful man of God, love him to death. He has an incredible gift to preach and to communicate God's word. Very loving, gracious, humble guy. Well, he retired as the pastor of Severe Heights in 2019. And after that, of course, naturally, the church began to experience some changes but eventually that led Vicky and me to begin to realize this is just not really where God wants us at this point. So we began to pray and look and think. And then a few months ago, we learned that Holly had become the full-time pastor at Fairview. Amazing. Fairview is just 30 minutes from where we live in Teleco Plains. That's not really, I mean, some of you may think 30 minutes is a long way to drive to go to church. But for us, it isn't. We've been used to driving an hour and 15 minutes to go to Severe Heights. So we decided we ought to at least check it out and pray and think and try to see what was happening there. And of course, we've joined. We love it. Holly Miller is the same old Holly Miller. He hasn't changed. He's just walking with the Lord and preaching God's word. If you know Vicki and me, you also know that worship is extremely important to us. And before, actually just a few weeks ago now, we didn't even know Philip Johnson. I may have met him before, but I didn't really know him at all. He's the worship pastor at Fairview. But what we've learned is that he has a deep love for our Lord Jesus and an incredible gift to lead worship. And I don't just mean he's a skilled musician. He is a skilled musician, no question about that. But he understands what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. So we're loving the worship at at Fairview. Our church is currently expanding the parking area, so we'll have more parking to facilitate people. And we've also moved to two Sunday schools, so we'll have more Sunday school rooms for growth and two worship services now. And attendance is going up. And I'm confident that God's going to be doing some really exciting things in the upcoming days, weeks, months, years at Fairview. So I'm saying all that to say this. If you're not already involved in a Bible-believing, Christ-honoring church, you ought to check it out. I would encourage you to come and visit with us. I'll tell you what I'll try to remember to do. I'll try to remember to put a link to the church's website with this post so you can get all the details, you know, where we are and the times and all that sort of thing. Or feel free to send me an email or send me a text. I'll be glad to communicate with you about this stuff. The day we joined the church, Dan and Sandra Lemons were the altar counselors that morning. And so they took us back and and talked with us about our relationship with the Lord. I think that's a great concept, too. I think every church needs to be doing that. Uh, Dan happens to co-teach a Sunday school class with Rick Bettis at Fairview. 
and of course, as we got to know Dan and and, and uh, Sandra, uh, they invited us to the class. Well, we said, sure, we'll check it out. And we've been there ever since. And this past Sunday, they invited me to teach just kind of as a substitute teacher for our class. And I was very thankful for that opportunity. And the first part of this study we're doing today together is essentially what I shared with the class. Uh, it would be yesterday from when I'm speaking right now. That would be Sunday, May 23rd, 2021. When we were at Severe Heights, our Bible study class, and different classes use different things, but our Bible study class used the Lifeway Bible study series called Explore the Bible. Some of you may be familiar with that. But here at Fairview, we're using what's called the Gospel Project. It's also a Lifeway series. And, and if I understand it correctly, uh, the way it works, it's a three-year-long chronological study of the Bible. It emphasizes how all of God's Word points us to Jesus. Now, I love that. Because some people think you read about Old Testament stuff in the Old Testament, and then you get to the New Testament, and you finally start learning about Jesus. But the truth is, the whole Bible points us to Jesus. When you start learning how God put together the Old Testament, it gets so exciting as you begin to see Jesus, uh, not just in the prophecies. Of course, he's in the prophecies, but, but in many, many of the things that happen in the Old Testament, they, they point us to Jesus. Are you familiar with Sally Lloyd-Jones' Jesus Storybook Bible? It's, it's a great children's Bible story book, and it's unique in a way because she makes it a point to help us see how all the way through the Old Testament that God's pointing us to Jesus. On the cover of that book, she's got the little line, every story whispers his name. I love it. And that's what this Bible study series is about. We're doing it. It's a, a three-year study divided into 12 volumes, 36 units. Uh, this quarter, we've been in volume 11, and that volume's entitled The Church United. This month, we're in unit 33. It's entitled Don't Forget. And yesterday, the focus was on the churches united in faith. In faith. We're together in faith. Three weeks ago, May 2nd, the focus was on the churches united under godly leaders. The focus was on Paul's relationship with Timothy. May the 9th, it was on the churches united in essentials. Last Sunday, it was the church united in love. Today, it's united in faith. Next Sunday, it'll be united in hope. You see the pattern there. So we're focusing on this unity we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, we're looking at Paul's letter to the Galatians today, chapter 3. But before we go there, I want to just say a few words about the United Church. You know, in particular, when we think about the fact that we are united in faith in Christ, the passage that jumps to my mind is Ephesians chapter 4. You remember this passage? Paul, let's look at it. Paul said, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, there it is, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. So we Christians, and you knew this, of course, we're, we're one body in Christ. God didn't tell us, try to become one body now. <laughs> no, he, he said, this is just a fact. When we come to Christ and trust Jesus we become his kids, of course, God's kids, but we also become part of the body of Christ. 
And as part of that body, uh, we can choose whether we're going to be edifying or building up people or encouraging people, or we can choose to be difficult, you know, to be divisive, but we can't choose whether or not we're part of the body. You know, if, we're, if we belong to Jesus, we're part of the body. So there's a fundamental unity that God's engineered. God did this himself into the body of Christ. Of course, we're called the church. He calls us the church. But we've, we've seen this before. It just bears repeating. Unity does not mean uniformity. Let's underline that, okay? It doesn't mean we agree on every single detail. Have you noticed God really likes variety? He loves it. Look at his creation. He's created all kinds of things, a variety of things in his creation that we get to enjoy and be amazed at. He's also created us, his people, to be different in a lot of ways, a lot of variety. I mean, just look at us. We all look different for one thing, but we have different personalities too, and different temperaments. And of course, when we're saved, he gives us spiritual gifts, but they're not all the same. He gives us different spiritual gifts. And not only that, he's wired us differently. So when we study his word, we find ourselves disagreeing about things. Isn't that interesting? Uh, I mean, think about the end times. Many of us have enjoyed trying to study a little bit of God's prophecies of the end times. We probably won't understand that until it all begins to be fulfilled. And then we'll see, yes, that's what God prophesied. But meantime, we like to try to understand it and think about what's going to happen. And we Christians, even those of us who love Jesus, we disagree about some of these things. A lot of it. <laughs> Sometimes we disagree about what some people call reformed theology or maybe some the points of Calvinism or maybe the different aspects of dispensationalism, you know, or we disagree about the differences in spiritual gifts, you know, what, what the different gifts are and how they work and how they function in the body. We'll disagree about these things. You know what? God could have written his word like a systematic theology textbook. He could have. Point one, point two, point three, sub point eight. You see what I'm saying? He could have written it like that. And that way there'd be very few areas where his kids would disagree. We'd say, let's try here's over point 14, sub point three, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. But God didn't do that. He gave us his word just like we have it, the Bible. And I believe there's several reasons for that. One of the reasons is because he loves for us to spend time with him. And the way we spend time with him is getting into his word, Right. We dig, we study, we, we, we want to understand it. We want to try to put it together. And we see what he said over here. And then we see what he said over here about the same subject. And, and we, we try to study God's word as carefully as we can. Study, try to understand the words. You know, God loves that. He also wants to teach us, I believe, to be humble in our positions. The things we believe he's saying to us on the non-essential things. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm talking about non-essential things. I'll explain that more in just a minute. But when we know that we have brothers and sisters in Christ, people who love Jesus, and, and they see things differently than we do, I believe God wants us to be just a little bit humble, maybe realize we could be wrong, even though it seems to us that we're right. We, we think we've studied it carefully, and we think we understand what God says. But if we've got people who disagree with us who really love Jesus, let's be careful. Let's stay humble. Stay teachable. You know, God may change our minds. Has he ever changed your mind about something before? If he hasn't, maybe you're not quite studying the right way. You know, we don't want to be stubborn. We want to be teachable. And of course, he wants us to learn how to love each other, right? Even when we're a little bit difficult, even if people disagree with us, and that's going to happen. 
Some people are different from us. We still need to learn to be gracious, loving, kind, patient. All this is part of our preparation for eternity. It's one reason he put two things together in his word the way he did. Now, I want to underline this when it comes to the fundamental doctrines. And you know what I'm talking about here. For example, the nature of God himself. We want to make sure we're worshiping the true God of the Bible. So he revealed himself to be a trinity, for example. He's one God, but he's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. We don't want to get that wrong. Otherwise, we've got major problems. We're worshiping the wrong God. You see my point? When it comes to who Jesus is and what Jesus did, you know, we know who Jesus is. He's God the Son, second person of the Trinity. He became one of us. He was born of the Virgin Mary, became a human being just as we are. And he was tempted in all points just as we are, yet without sin, the Bible teaches. He never, ever sinned. When he went to the cross, he died on the cross in our place. He took the wrath of God that we should have had. He took it in our place. He paid the penalty for us. And, and, and when we realize that, and we realize that he was crucified and died for us and that he was buried. And three days later, he came out of that tomb alive. Uh, he rose again. He conquered death and hell and the grave. Uh, we're worshiping the right Jesus. You see my point here? We don't want to be worshiping the wrong Jesus. There are people who say, well, it really wasn't God. or some other nonsense. You know, that's the wrong Jesus. Or he really doesn't care about sin. The wrong Jesus. So we want to make sure we're worshiping the right Jesus. And of course, when it comes to salvation, we've got to get it right. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're going to be talking a lot about that today, but we're one. So we may disagree on some of the details, but when it comes to the essentials, we're united. We believe the same thing. It's what makes us Christians. So today our focus is on the unity we have in faith, and the focal passage is Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 3. Let me say this about Galatia first, just as a little background. It was a Roman province that stretched north and south almost all the way across the middle of Asia Minor. We call it Turkey today. You can see it here on the map in green. Uh, this is Paul's mission, second missionary journey you're looking at right now. You can see where it is, though, relative to the whole eastern Mediterranean region. You can see the Roman province of Asia here in yellow. Ephesus, that's one of the major cities you read a lot about in Paul's letters and Acts. It was the Roman province of Asia, one of the major cities of Rome. Jerusalem's down in the lower right-hand corner there. You see Jerusalem. Macedonia and Achaia, we call this Greece today, both regions. They were two different Roman provinces, and that is in the upper left there. If we zoom in a little, Galatia's still green here. It's just a different shade of green. But you'll notice that southern Galatia includes some cities that we read about in Acts especially, and maybe in Paul's letters. Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra. Lystra was Timothy's home, and Derby. Paul visited all these cities on all three of his missionary journeys, so he spent a lot of time there. Give you an idea about the scale of the map. It's about 90 miles from Pisidian Antioch down to Iconium. So Galatia was a Roman province that had many cities in it. That means that this letter to the Galatians is addressed to several different churches in several different cities. If you kind of look at all Paul's letters, you realize they're all addressed either to Christians in a specific city like Rome or Ephesus or Corinth or Philippi or Colossae or Thessalonica, or maybe to a specific Christian person like Timothy or Titus or Philemon. But, but in this case, he's talking to several churches. And the fact is the very serious problem that he's dealing with here, and this 
This is a very serious problem he's dealing with in this letter to the Galatians. It's infected many churches in the Galatian province, and it is a heresy. It's serious stuff. By the way, while you're looking at that map, do you see the, the city of Ankara up there in the northern part of Galatia? Uh, when Rome made Galatia into a Roman province, they made Ankara the capital. It isn't mentioned in the Bible, although a lot of scholars think Paul really did get there, that he visited North Galatia's, uh, northern Galatia as well. But, but Ankara still exists today. Only we call it Ankara. It's the capital of modern Turkey. Ankara, Turkey, same place, same city. Around 300 BC, Galatia was settled by a people called the Gauls. They were a Celtic people. They came in from Europe and they migrated there about 300 years before the birth of Christ. Well, about 64 years before the birth of Christ, Rome conquered that area, Galatia. And in 25 BC, Caesar Augustus made it a province of the Roman Empire, and he called it Galatia. He's the one that named it. And he got the word, as you can see from the word Gaul. These were Gaul people that came in from Gaul, and Celtic people. Paul first visited the area on his first missionary journey in 48 AD. And a year or two later, I believe, and there's a little bit of debate and scholars will disagree about this kind of thing, but I believe Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians probably around 49 or 50 AD. A lot of scholars, and I happen to agree with them, think this is probably Paul's first inspired letter. Some people think it was another one, like the letters to the Thessalonians. We're not exactly sure, but it seems logical and it seems to fit that, uh, that it was his first. In any case, it's one of the earliest books in the New Testament that was written. He probably wrote it after he and Barnabas had arrived back at Syria and Antioch. Remember, after that first missionary journey, he went on with Barnabas. They went back to Antioch, and, and apparently he's gotten a report of the conditions of the churches there. So just as soon as he gets back, there are people who are seeing what's happened as soon as he left, and maybe he's even still on the way back to Antioch when they're on the way too, saying, we got some problems. Paul, there's some people in the churches here that are really creating some problems. It's a very serious issue. And so Paul writes this letter back to them immediately. It's a very exciting letter. It's a very passionate letter. You can definitely see Paul's heart in this letter. And I share these details when we do Bible studies like this sometimes just to emphasize we're looking at genuine history here. We're talking about real places. We're talking about real people. We're talking about real events that happened in real time. You know, the Bible is a historical book. It's not just a book made up of stories. Sometimes, I'm afraid, some people get this notion that, you know, they just kind of dip into the Bible here and dip into the Bible there and dip into the Bible there, and they see uh, some stories. They think of it as a collection of stories. And sometimes people get it in their heads, well, maybe these stories are just made up. Maybe this isn't real history. Maybe this is just a bunch of myths that some guys put together. If, if, if you think like that, you need to check out some of the Veritas 2020 videos uh, that we've got on YouTube, but uh, have a lot more detail about this. But my point is, this is real history. These things really happen. These are real people we're talking about. You remember Martin Luther, the great leader of the Protestant Reformation? <laughs> he came out of the Catholic Church. And what that meant was he came out of a very legalistic kind of environment. You know, he believed all his life salvation was by works. And, and when he began to understand the truth, what the Bible taught here in Galatians and Romans, uh, the Bible doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I mean, it just revolutionized his life, of course, and it led to the Protestant Reformation. But he particularly loved this letter. 
Martin Luther called Galatians, my Catherine von Bora. <laughs> Catherine von Bora was the name of his wife. <laughs> and he said, I'm married to this book. He loved the book of Galatians. Leon Morris, you may have heard of him or read some of his commentaries. He's an Australian New Testament scholar. Well, he was. He died just a few years ago. But he wrote this statement. You see right now, it summarizes Galatians beautifully in one sentence. I love this sentence. Galatians is a passionate letter. The outpouring of the soul of a preacher on fire for his Lord and deeply committed to bringing his hearers to an understanding of what saving faith is. Isn't that good? That's a good summary of Galatians. So the churches in Galatia have been infected with a false gospel. And in Galatians chapter 3, Paul's teaching them, and of course God calls it to be put into his word as part of the Bible. So it's us too, some extremely important truth about salvation. But listen, you stayed with me this far, but this is a little bit tedious. It's one of those passages that some people get a little bit distracted. I don't know, it's doctrinally heavy, but it's so important. So it's one of those passages and one of those studies that it would be easy. I know I'm, I'm the same way. It'd be easy to kind of let your mind float away and then come back to, whoa, 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 what, what, what was that? <laughs> you know, so I'm just urging you to try to sit on the edge of your seat, figuratively speaking, and try to make yourself pay attention, shake the cobwebs out of your mind and, and stay with me here. You know by now, if you've studied the Bible much, that not everything Paul wrote is easy to understand. <laughs> Peter said that too. You remember the apostle Peter wrote this in 2 Peter about Paul's letters. Look at this. He said, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There, look at this. There are some things in them, he's talking about in Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Peter had a trouble sometimes understanding what God was saying through Paul as well. So my prayer is right now that I'm going to be able to accurately communicate some of this. I believe God's saying some really important things here, and I don't want us to miss it. Let me say one more thing before we spend a little time digging into chapter 3 because I think it applies very strongly to this subject we're looking at today. Of course, from the very beginning of the establishment of the church, we've had an enemy, right? The devil. The devil has been aggressively trying to distort God's truth. He wants to create confusion. He wants to deceive as many people as he possibly can. So he works hard at that. And listen, guys, Satan would love to make legalists out of us all. That's what the Galatians were struggling with. By the way, if he can't do that, he would love to make antinomians out of us all. Antinomians, people who think sin is really no big deal. It doesn't matter. You know, the law doesn't count anymore. Just sin all you want to because Jesus has forgiven us. Either extreme works for Satan. Both of them are extremes. For many, many years now, and some of you heard me talk about this, I've been convinced that one of the most important words in a Christian's vocabulary should be godly balance. Now, sometimes I think some people have misunderstood me and they may think, wait a minute, Steve, God doesn't want us to be lukewarm. He wants us to be extreme. He hates lukewarmness. You remember the church at Laodicea in Revelation? Yes, yes, yes. And I agree with that statement. He wants us to be passionate. That's not at all what I'm talking about. No, that's a different topic. No, I think that the Christian life and biblical truth, I think Jesus made this clear, can be compared to a narrow road. 
It's a narrow way. And there are ditches on both sides of this road. And our tendency, because we're still in the flesh, we're walking through this life in the flesh, we see some things kind of darkly. Sometimes it's hard for us to see things clearly. And what will happen to us sometimes is we'll see the danger of one of the ditches on one side of the road. And in our effort to keep out of that ditch, too often we will blindly veer off into the ditch on the other side. And there's a very strong tendency for us Christians to fall into one ditch or the other, depending on which seems more seriously wrong to us. Some time ago, I came across a quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. Have you looked at that book? You probably know who I'm talking about. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Remember C.S. Lewis? Great Christian leader. He was an atheist. God changed his mind when he was a young man. But in his book, Mere Christianity, he was discussing two different ways of thinking about individual Christians. He said, some people focus on the ways that we're all alike, because after all, we're all part of the same body of Christ, right? He said, other people will focus on the ways that we're all different, and we are unique. We have little differences in our opinions and difference in our understanding. I've talked about that earlier. But Lewis said, if we treat everybody as if we're all the same, we really can wind up in a ditch. And if we treat everybody as if we're all unique, We can also wind up in a ditch. And then C.S. Lewis wrote this. Look at these words. He said, I feel a strong desire to tell you, and I expect you feel a strong desire to tell me which of these two errors is the worst. That's the devil getting at us. He always sends errors into the world in pairs, pairs of opposites. And he always encourages us to spend a lot of time thinking which is the worse. You see why, of course. He relies on your extra dislike of one error to draw you gradually into the opposite one. But do not let us be fooled. We have to keep our eyes on the goal. Did you hear that? Those are good words from C.S. Lewis. We have to keep our eyes on the goal and go straight between both errors. We have no other concern than, than that with either of them. You hear what he's saying? I think this is really, really important for Christians to get a handle on. For example, let's say we've, we're the kind of person that we've seen excessive emotionalism maybe in some churches and some services and, and, and that we think, ooh, that bothers me. Uh, we don't like that excessive emotionalism. Well, if we're not careful... What we'll do in reaction to that is to fall into the other ditch, dry, dead worship without any passion for Jesus. And some of us may fear that so much. We we look at at the spiritual deadness in some churches and and we think, boy, I don't want to be like that. And we're liable to fall into the ditch of hyper-emotionalism, substituting cheerleading for worship or faking the passion. You know what I mean? Uh, Vicki and I went in a church like that one time. It seemed like they were just cheerleading people, you know, and it, it troubled us. But there, there are two ditches here. It's not just one ditch. Another example, many, many Christians are, rightly so, fearful of hyper-Calvinism. We don't want to go there. We realize that can cause a lot of problems in a church. But if we're not careful in reaction to that, we'll fall into the other ditch. And we'll start minimizing the sovereign grace of God. That's dangerous. And if we fear the ditch of minimizing the sovereignty of God, we might be in danger of falling into the other ditch and beginning to deny men's free moral agency and responsibility to make decisions. You see what I'm getting at here? 
I mean, they're, they're two different errors here, and sometimes it's really not easy for us to tease them apart. We may fear the ditch of baptismal regeneration. You know, there's some people that teach that baptism is necessary for salvation. And so if we fear that, we may be in danger of getting into the ditch of minimizing baptism, making, making it sound like it's just not really important at all. That's another mistake. And of course, if we're so afraid of minimizing the importance of baptism at all, and we feel like a lot of people are just minimizing it, we may be in danger of teaching that it's necessary for salvation, like the Church of Christ people. You see what I'm getting at here? So here we are in Galatians. And if we fear the ditch of legalism, which is a horrible ditch, we're just liable to fall into the ditch of antinomianism, of minimizing the horrific consequences of sin, acting like sin is no big deal. And if we fear antinomianism, we're liable to fall into the ditch of legalism. Let me take this just one step further. It's the same concept here. I just want to try to get you to think about this a little bit. Not only that, but if we fear the ditch of legalism, then we may be over here in the other ditch and we find ourselves accusing people of legalism who are just teaching the truth that when Jesus comes into our lives, he changes us. He makes us into new creatures. We will be obeying God. You know, that's what caused Martin Luther to be so suspicious of the letter James. He had lived his whole life drenched and immersed in legalism. And when we finally got out of that ditch and saw the truth, that ditch horrified Martin Luther. And so he was he, he didn't like the book of James because it reminded him of legalism. He was in the other ditch. Many years ago, I had a pastor who was the same way. He refused to preach or teach from the book of James at all because it reminded him too much of legalism. On the other hand, if we fear the ditch of antinomianism too much, we may find ourselves accusing people of lawlessness, just even though they're right in the center, they're doing the right thing because they're teaching the truth that salvation is by grace alone. See what I'm saying here? So this is the situation the Galatians found themselves in. Some of the Galatians had been warned by false teachers of the dangers of lawlessness, the danger of antinomianism. They feared that ditch. And as a result, they'd fall into the ditch of legalism. And it's not a trivial ditch, guys. It's a ditch of heresy. It's serious. It denies the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, anytime we try to tell people that they can be saved, by simply trusting Jesus and, and you fill in the blank, and anything. Getting baptized, joining the church, getting rid of your bad habits, speaking in tongues, <laughs> becoming a Jew. In their case, that was what it was. We're in a ditch because the Bible makes it clear salvation is not a matter of trusting Jesus and something else, anything else. Whatever you want to fill in the blank. It's just Jesus. The gospel is we're saved by Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. But don't miss this now. Listen to me. Tune in. If we have been truly saved, if we have truly trusted Christ and been saved by grace through faith, God begins a work in us called sanctification. And that produces a radical change in us over a period of time. We become different. We're new creatures. We don't act like we used to act. We're becoming more and more like Jesus. Those things, those changes don't cause salvation. They don't bring about salvation. They're the consequence of salvation. You see the difference? That, by the way, is why it's good to study the book of Galatians 
at the same time we're studying the book of James. Because Galatians will definitely keep us out of the ditch of legalism. And James will definitely keep us out of the ditch of antinomianism. And it's kind of interesting, isn't it? It seems like, I believe, that God gave both of those books as maybe two of the first books of the New Testament, Galatians and James, to keep people out of those ditches. Okay, let's look at verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Strong words, huh? He starts that chapter off. Foolish, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? What's happened to you? Paul knows exactly what he preached to them. He was there not too long before this. He's trying to shake them awake. Spiritually, he's saying, come on, guys. You know why Jesus was crucified. I preached the clear truth to you. I didn't deceive you. How can you let yourselves be so deceived so quickly by these guys, these legalists? Here's his point. Why on earth was Jesus crucified? There was only one reason. God's wrath against our sin could not be satisfied any other way. If there'd been any other way for us to make ourselves acceptable to God, it would have been revealed. You know when it would have been revealed? For sure. You remember when Jesus was about to go to the cross and he was in Gethsemane praying? The Bible says he's sweating like great drops of blood. Agony in Gethsemane. You remember what he prayed? Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Why do you think God's recorded that in Scripture for us? Why do you think Jesus did that and prayed that? I'll tell you at least one of the reasons to show us there was no other way. When perfectly innocent Jesus, sinless Jesus, sweating as it were great drops of blood, cried out to the Father, Father, is there any other way? It was so we could realize the answer is no. There is no other way. Jesus knew that. The Father knew that. <laughs> and he wants us to know that. It's only in trusting in his death in our place that we're saved. We had nothing. We have nothing to contribute to our salvation. Nothing. What Paul's doing here is concluding the point he was making in the verse that comes right before this. It happens to be in chapter 2, the last verse of chapter 2, verse 21. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If we could attain the righteousness of God by keeping the law, then there would have been no reason for Jesus to die. There would have been another way to be saved, you see. Verse 2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? <laughs> so he's asking, does it really make sense to you that God would take us in our sins, pick us up in our disgusting rebellion against Him, give us life, forgive us our sins by grace through the sacrificial blood of Jesus, and then say, that's it. No more grace from me. You're on your own now. <laughs> I hope you make it. No. <laughs> this passage, by the way, turns out to be a very powerful argument for the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, the security of the believer. Paul knows that these Galatians realize the only way to receive the Spirit of God is by faith. The only way to be saved is by faith. He knows they know that. He's made that very, very clear to them. And by the way, let me, let me just chase this rabbit just a little bit. When he says to receive the Spirit of God, 
it's a synonym for saying saved. It's what happens when we get saved. We don't want to be confused about that. Some people want to separate those two things as if they're two separate events. Remember what he wrote to Romans in Romans chapter 8, verse 9? He said, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Did you hear that? Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So if we belong to Christ, we're saved. His spirit lives in us. Converse is also true. If his spirit lives in us, we belong to him. We're saved. So he's giving them a powerful argument. He's asking, okay, you didn't get saved by anything but by trusting Jesus, right? Pure grace, right? God did it all, right? Yes. That's why even James, by the way, wrote this. He said, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be kind of first fruits of his creatures. God did this. We didn't save ourselves by keeping the law. He, out of his own will, he saved us. So do we think God would do all the work required for our salvation, including dying on the cross for us and then coming, convicting us of our sins and the power of the Holy Spirit, granting us repentance, granting us faith, forgiving us of our sins, making us into new creatures in Jesus Christ, making us one of his kids, all of that by grace. And then he would say, now that's all I'm going to do. Rest is up to you. I'm not going to keep you. You have to keep yourself. Because if we think we can lose our salvation, it implies it's up to us to keep it, right? If we can do something to lose it, then we got to do something that we don't lose it so we can keep it. He's completing the thought. He started back in chapter 2, verse 20. That would be two verses before chapter 3. He says, this is, you'll, you'll be familiar with this verse. I, Paul said, and this is not just Paul, it's all of us. I have been crucified with Christ. So have all of us who are trusting Jesus. He makes that clear in Romans chapter 6. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul saying, I'm not being perfected in the flesh. I'm not being perfected by the works of the law. It's simple faith in Jesus. I'm walking in faith. Jesus lives in me. I'm being perfected by Jesus. And yes, it's true. Paul would say, I'm bearing fruit for him. But it's really not me. Jesus is working through me. It's Jesus, not me. So you see the problem. These Galatians were in danger of saying, well, you've you got to start by faith. That's true. But then you've got to find the strength in yourself to go on with the Lord. You've got to do it yourself. You've got to keep all these commands and do all this legalistic stuff in order to keep in God's favor. You know how a lot of people say that today? There's a saying that people will say, and, and please don't misunderstand me here. I realize there can be some nuances here, but you'll hear people say, God helps those who help themselves. Have you ever heard that? God helps them who help themselves. <laughs> and I've even had people tell me that's in the Bible, but of course it's not in the Bible. And you know what I think Paul would say if he heard those words, God helps those who help themselves? I think Paul would say, oh no, that's heresy. No, God helps those who cannot help themselves. That's the whole point. When we were yet sinners, we were helpless. We were slaves of sin. We were slaves of Satan. We were in his kingdom. And Christ died for us and redeemed us and took us out of that. But Jesus had to do it. We couldn't help ourselves. Now, I know 
those who fear antinomianism will say, whoa, 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 whoa. Isn't it necessary to live a righteous life? Isn't it necessary to obey the Lord? Yes, it is. But the key, are you beginning to see it now? I'm sure you are. The key to seeing the difference is understanding where that obedience is coming from. Who's doing it? Am I doing it myself? Not if I'm a Christian. Jesus is doing it in me. 220, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus is talking about the same truth in John 15. Remember the John 15, he's comparing himself to a vine and us to branches. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. <laughs> Very clear, isn't it? I mean, he's not saying the branches produce fruit and they get a little help from the vine. <laughs> no, 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 no. The vine produces the fruit through the branches. Jesus is doing it. So as Christians, when God does something good through us, and we find ourselves growing in Christ and becoming useful to God. That should happen to all of us. It'll be different ways. We're all different, but there'll be different ways you'll bring glory to God if you're a Christian, right? And there'll be somebody see that from time to time and they'll encourage you for it. Well, that's wonderful. Thank God for encouragers in the body of Christ. We all need to be encouragers because I'm telling you, every time God does something good through you, Satan will do everything he can to discourage you because he doesn't want it to happen again. So he'll try to get you discouraged. He's got tons of ways. So we need to encourage each other. But the greatest encouragement, I believe, would be words something like this. God really used you when you did that. God was doing something powerful through you when you did that. And if, and if well-meaning folks happen to tell us how great we are and, and leave God out of it. If they just say, wow, you did a great job. Wow, you, that was really impressive. Wow, I'm, I'm amazed at what you were doing or whatever. You know, people will tell us that from time to time when God uses us. And I'm not saying you have to correct them every time. You don't have to. Sometimes it's not a bad idea to say, well, I appreciate you saying that. We both know that if I did something good, it's the Lord doing it through me. It's not really me. But every time, every time, we need to, in our own hearts at least, say, Lord, you and I both know it isn't me. It's you in me. You know, I'm thankful for the encouragement, but I know it's you. It's not me. We don't want to make the mistake of falling into that trap that the Pharisees fell in, that self-righteousness, thinking they were doing all this stuff, sucking up the glory for themselves. No, it all belongs to God. Why? Because he's the one doing it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Wow, that's so important. Verse six reminds us of an event that's recorded back in Genesis chapters 14 and 15. In Genesis 14, God tells about a time when the a man named Kedorlaomer, he was the king of Elam, and Elam was way off to the east of Israel, part of what later became Persia. We call it Iran now, that region. Anyway, Kedorlaomer had an alliance with several other kings in that area, and they came in and defeated Sodom and Gomorrah. Of course, this was long before Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, but he came in and defeated those two cities, and he, they 
They took captives from those cities, and that included Abraham's nephew Lot. Well, God supernaturally enabled Abraham to pursue them and to defeat Kedorlaomer and to save Lot and save his family and all of his possessions. And it was at that time that Melchizedek showed up. You remember Melchizedek, a, a great priest that God raised up? Not from Levi, of course, because Levi hadn't even been born yet. And, and Hebrews talks about Melchizedek. We won't go there right now. But Abraham paid him a tithe. And that gets us to Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. He's not even kin to me. Abraham said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household shall be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Of course, he's talking about Isaac. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. Number the stars, if you're able to number them. And then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And, and he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Turns out to be one of the most important verses in the Bible. Paul quotes it in Romans chapter 4. James quotes it over in James chapter 2. The writer of Hebrews talks about it in chapter 11. Here's the point. It was not Abraham's works that earned him favor with God. It was his faith. Abraham believed God. God counted it as righteousness. And in that faith, Abraham gave us a glimpse of the time when the sacrifice of Jesus made it possible for God to justify sinners justly. Sinners who trusted him. God declared Abraham righteous just as he declares us righteous now. Like Abraham, we believe God. We trust God. We trust Jesus. And God counts it to us as righteousness. And that, listen now guys, don't, don't leave me here. Don't tune me out. <laughs> that turns out to be the only way that anyone at any time has ever been able to be righteous in God's sight. We all have to trust him. It's the only way. Verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. God goes to great pains to point this out all the way through the scripture. His true family are the people of faith. Now, let's not miss this, guys, because the Jews were very confused by this. To them, the fact that they were biological sons of Abraham was enough. They thought, we're God's kids. We're the ones he loves, the biological sons of Abraham. They're the descendants of Abraham. But God kept saying, listen, guys, even in the Old Testament, he said, I've got a remnant you remember Elijah at one point said, Lord, they dug down your altars. They killed your prophets. I'm the only one left. They're seeking my life. And the Lord said, no, 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 no. You're not alone. I've got a remnant here. I've got 7,000 not bowed their knee to Baal. God always did that through the Old Testament. The remnant consisted of those who, like Abraham, just like Abraham, trusted God. They loved God. They put their faith in God. 
Jesus had to deal with the same thing when he became a man. You remember, he, he's, he's talking with the Pharisees and they said to him, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said, wait a minute, guys. If you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. You'd be loving and trusting and believing God. You're not Abraham's children. If you did, you'd have the faith. If you were, you'd have the faith of Abraham. Here in Galatians 3, a little bit later in the chapter, Paul says it again. If you're Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Part of the remnant. Back in Romans chapter 9, he says this. It's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham just because they're his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it's not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promises are counted as offspring. So in Israel, God always preserved a remnant. True Israel, people of faith. And then in the New Testament, amazing thing happens. He begins to graft into that remnant, that stream of the remnant, Gentiles. And he says, they're part of true Israel. They're part of the descendants of Abraham, even though they're not circumcised, even though they're not biological Israelites, they're people of faith. So he drives that home in verses eight and nine here. Let's look at it. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you, all the nations shall be blessed. Of course, this is a prophecy of the Messiah who would tear down the walls of barriers between Jews and Gentiles. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. So God gave them the law. And at this point, I think we probably need to take a little bit of an aside and say he's talking about God's great moral law, not the Jewish civil laws. He gave them civil laws in the Old Testament, too, to govern their society. He also gave them ceremonial laws and sacrificial laws and laws of the priesthood. What were they for? Well, they were to point to the Messiah, the coming Messiah. Uh, when Jesus came, you know, all those laws ended. He also gave them laws uh, that was designed to keep them separated from the other nations. Sometimes we call them holiness code laws to keep Israel separate. But all of those were temporary, except for God's great moral law. And they really did pass away. Remember when Jesus died on the cross and the veil was rent from top to bottom and Jesus said, it's finished. Those laws were done at that point, but not God's moral law. God's moral law still it exists. It's eternal. And God teaches us here that we need to recognize that not only does his law teach us how to live life with the best possible outcome, because it's true, to the extent we keep his moral law, things will go better for us. But this is so important, guys. Again, if you tune me out, if your mind's wandering off, come back. <laughs> his, his law teaches us that all of us humans are total miserable failures at keeping it. We must recognize we need his grace, guys. We have to trust him to forgive all of our sins. We can't just be really, really good to make up for all the times we were bad. If we don't keep the whole thing and none of us will, none of us can, none of us have, we're under a curse. That means all mankind is under the curse. 
all mankind. We need a Savior. We're going to have to trust Jesus. He's our only hope. So if we try to please God by keeping the law, or if we try to impress others by keeping the law, or if we try to reassure ourselves by keeping the law, God says you're under a curse. Look at what he wrote to the Galatians back in chapter 1. He said, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so now I say again, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. There is no other gospel. A gospel of legalism is no gospel at all. It leads to being cursed. When we go about trying to establish our own righteousness, and you know what always comes with that? Spiritual pride. We feel good about ourselves, about all the good stuff we've done. We brag about our good stuff. We're under a curse. There are a lot of people in our churches today who have a false sense of assurance because they perceive themselves to be doing a pretty good job of obeying God. They say, I must be okay with God. I mean, I'm doing all this good stuff. Listen, guys, don't miss this. The question is, who are we relying on? Am I relying on myself? Am I trusting myself? Or am I relying only on Jesus? Am I trusting Jesus? He's the only way. Now, if you happen to be watching this today and you were in class yesterday in Sunday school and Bible study, this is as far as we got. So we, we ran out of time right here. So I'm going to kind of interrupt myself to tell you that from here on out, uh, you, you know, all I've said up to this point, hopefully sounds pretty familiar. It may not be exactly the same. It's close. But, but now you're not going to be familiar with what I'm going to say next. So tune in here. The conclusion of this Galatians 3 study can be found in the next posted video entitled Galatians 3, 1 through 18, Faith, Part 2.